All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians. We're going to be in the third chapter, uh, verse 21, excuse me, verse 18 through 21. We'll read those together. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, under the middle row of, of seats there. You can take that and keep it as your own, as a gift from us to you. All right, so let's read these together. Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is God's word. Wow. I don't know why you felt when you, when you were reading that, but those are some short sentences, right? But they, they, they pack a lot of punch. Um, the theme of our text today is family matters. That's what I'm calling my sermon. But the specific question before us today is what shapes your life? Really, more than that, what shapes your family? We're talking about um, ideas in regards to Christian family life. This is likely the most practical text in all of the book of Colossians, but it's also the most contentious and gains the most scrutiny. And it's like that because all of us approach these words, these specific words here with a little with with, with experience. We approach it with a filter. And that filter is all of us have been children, likely in a home with parents. At least 60 percent of you in this room right now are engaged Mary, you've experienced all of these things that this text is talking about, and you have had either positive, neutral or negative experiences in regards to your experience in all of these ways of life. And so you filter what you hear in these words through your experience. And I would encourage you, don't put up your guard. Don't block out what God is saying to you by spirit through these words. Don't come in at don't don't come at it with preconceived notions as to what you already know that that God is telling us to do here. And I would definitely encourage you um, not to just accept what what all of society believes in regards to these few verses. God has something to say to us today. You know, most of our Bibles have a, a paragraph break between verse 17 and where we started today. In verse 18. And that's that's not wrong. You know that this is a letter. So Paul is writing a letter and just much like the letters that you would write to your friends. Most of us don't put like titles, you know, husbands and wives and, and things in our letters unless you're just a very special person. <laughs> I'll say it like that. So he's just writing this out. But this is an appropriate break because he, he does change subjects here. He changes things. But we would be wrong to dismiss what he said in verse 17, because the, what he said in verse 17 segues in and really sets the foundation for what he says about family matters in verse 18 through 21. And then what we'll learn two weeks from now when we talk about us and our work. And so this is what verse 17 says. And whatever you do, do uh, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 17 appropriately summarizes everything that Paul has said in chapter three, the latter half of Colossians. And and it makes way for us to to think about the things of our home in light of who God is and what he's done. And that really is what 17 does. My eye, you know, there's a lot here. This, you could preach a sermon just on verse 17. My eyes go directly to that. That word do everything. John preached very appropriate last week. Everything in the Bible means everything. OK, sometimes it means whole. Sometimes it means all. But it's like everything, everything that you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think what God would have us pay attention to in verse 17 and carry forward in verse 18 is that God has things for us to do. He has a lot of things you know, from cover to cover in the Bible. There's things that God commands us to do as his people. He has expectations that he puts on us and they come forward to us as imperatives, as commands. Do this. Don't do that. But the warning, the caution in verse 17, as he's summarizing all that Paul has said is don't approach your doing without 
an acknowledgement of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The way that I've said this for most of this sermon is God doesn't tell us what to do without first showing us who we are in him. Identity precedes behavior. Another way that I've uh, couched this term is uh, be before you do. Be who God has called you to be. Understand who you are as a Christian, saved by faith, through grace, in him, who Jesus is before you launch into all these commands that God would have you do. Because the, the, this, is the, this is what happens if you try to do before you understand who God has made you, before you be. You end up a moralist or a legalist. And a moralist is someone who just does kind things because it's in their heart to do kind things. And they may even look like a Christian, but being moral, doing good things, disassociated from life in Christ means that you're just you're just a kind, nice person. The other extreme is that you actually do have a relationship with God, but you're doing things in the name of God, but you're doing it from a legalist perspective, legalist perspective. You're doing it as a list of rules that you have to do in order to get to wherever God is taking us in this life. And both of those would be the wrong extremes. And so here in verse 17, Paul simply says, do everything in regards to your relationship in Jesus. A little cultural, a little few words on cultural context is appropriate for here because um, this isn't 21st century writing. And and it's not that. So we shouldn't read it like that. And so, so to understand how to apply this to where we live right now today, we got to understand where Paul is, is coming from. And so Paul is writing during a time when women and children had absolutely no rights. None. The, the, the husband, the, the man of the house, the, the leader of the household um, had every privilege and authority over those who lived or worked in in the home. And if you are a child or a woman, you had none. You were subject to whatever the, the head of the household the husband, the man told you to do. This was a legal state of affairs in the first century world. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce notes that what we're reading here, when we read um, you know, these words about a Christian household, is the common depiction of what called, what's called household tables. And this is a phrase that he attributes to German theologian and uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said that this was simply a listing of duties that members of a household would undertake. And so the man is in charge and everybody else in the house basically does does all the work. And so what Paul is doing in this in this paragraph that we read and also some other parallel texts that we'll take a peek at during our, our sermon today is he's breaking the status quo. He's not necessarily going against the legal, the legal state of affairs. He's not telling children and wives to be totally um, dismissive of the leadership, the rulership of the man of the house, the head of the household. What he's doing, though, is he's subliminally saying everybody has rights. And within those rights, in a, a, a Christian perspective, wives be submissive, children obey, parents don't provoke your kids. And this would have been revolutionary in their time. I know we read it and we think, well, this is this is, you know, this is uh, misogynistic. This is legalistic. He's putting burdens on us that aren't on us. But we've got to we've got to translate the, the text based upon the culture that's that's given us. What we should glean from Paul's imperatives is that he's saying live like this, folks. If you're uh, if you trust in Jesus, then then you're doing in your family this is how you live redemptively in your Christian family. And I don't know why he did it, but Paul started with the wives first. He started with the wives first. So in verse 18, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then, OK, so drop your filters, put them down. Whatever your preconceived notions about this, this text is. Just lay them aside just for like three. Oh, I need five minutes. Actually, I need 10 minutes to get through this one. All right. So 
Lots of people respond negatively to, to this command. Some out of rejection for God's word, they just don't appreciate what the Bible says. They don't think it's authoritative. They don't think it's inerrant. They think it's just, you know, a bunch of rules for us to follow. Some others would, again, impose misogynistic views on the Bible. They think the Bible's archaic. It doesn't speak to our our day to day. But most reject it because when they're reading these words, they're ignorant as to what Paul is actually saying. And so we're going to talk about what Paul is saying. An important note here is that these instructions are for wives in regards to in, in regards to her husband. Look at the text. It says wives submit to your husband. It isn't saying Cindy submit to John across the street. It's also not saying all women submit to all men. It's not saying that. And so very appropriately, I'm going to start by saying what this is, what is what this doesn't mean, what the text doesn't mean. Firstly, wives, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with your husband on everything. It doesn't mean that your husband gets to make all the decisions and you just go with it. Yes, 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 Johnny. Yes, yes, Bob. It doesn't mean that you're silent and passive. It doesn't mean that you can't challenge and can't confront your husband, because if you're doing all those things, then very much you're just a passive. You're a passive person. You're a passive wife. And Paul here is not um, espousing that wives be passive. And so if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? It means that you are cultivating an atmosphere that's honoring and affirming. And listen to those words. It's an attitude. It's a disposition of your heart. That's what Paul is trying to get at. You're choosing to support the leadership of your husband in your home. This is not a technical definition, but it's one that I like. And it's from Dr. Sam Storms. And I've quoted him a lot here because the community group leaders are are using a book called Hope of Glory by Sam Storms. And it's meditations, 100 meditations on the book of Colossians. And so he pulls this out as uh, uh, an acceptable definition of submission. He says the submission is the disposition to honor and affirm a husband's authority and an inclination to embrace his leadership. And I don't know, ladies, if you like that or not, but I, I think that's deserving of of some thought. I think here mostly it implies a voluntary submission. A woman is not being coerced. She's not being, her hands are behind her back. I mean, she's being forced to uh, do things that she doesn't want to do. But she has the opportunity to um, to choose to be submissive to the leadership of her husband. It makes the wife's submission her willing choice, not some universal sanction of masculine domination. There's a parallel text to these verses, and we're going to look at several of them. Um, the most um, used, the most known one is in Ephesians uh, chapter five. We're going to look at a few verses here before I get there. There's, there's this uh, there's a technical word that's uh, that's called perspicuity, perspicuity. I'm saying it wrong, probably, but it simply means to, to see clearly and apply to the Bible. What it means is. Uh, The Bible, there are places in the Bible that can help other places, help us see other texts more clearly. Um, Really, a simple way to put it is uh, scripture interprets scripture. And one of the ways that we can see what Paul is is actually saying here in Colossians when he says these simple words, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, is go to other texts in the Bible and see how he unfolds, how he unpacks it. And in this Ephesians verse, he actually unpacks it a little bit more than he does in Colossians. And the reason why is, you know, Paul wrote circular letters. And so we'll read later on in chapter four in Colossians. He tells the, the, the church at Colossae to take this letter and make sure you give it to the church at Laodicea. And you also read their letter. OK. And so very much all these letters that Paul wrote, Colossians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, he would have expected the believers there to pass this along to the next church in the next city so that they would be able to glean and be encouraged or challenged by these words. And the same thing is, is happening here. And so as we go to Ephesians chapter um, chapter five, verse verse 22. This is what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, I think what Paul is pointing out here is uh, submission from a woman to her husband is a voluntary thing where she is choosing to um, lay aside her uh, her willing leadership to his leadership in the home. More than that, what she's doing is she's acknowledging the authority that God has given her husband as a man married to her as his wife. I, I like these words that, that in verse 22, it says, as to the Lord. A wife is not submitting to her husband because of who he is. These, these are important. This is important right here. This is the most important thing I'm going to say to you ladies right here. A woman is not a wife is not submitting to her husband because of who he is. You're submitting because of who Jesus is. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. This is what Jesus has called you to. You do not do you do not submit because your husband is deserving of it. That's a hard thing. He's calling you to a hard thing. You're submitting to honor Jesus. And then verse 23 helps us to round this out. Paul says, the husband is the head of the wife. And this is a reference to what we read in Genesis. In Genesis, in chapter 1, Paul unfolds the creation of the world in six days. And then in chapter 2, he breaks out a a magnifying glass and he hones in on the sixth day of creation where God made the man and the woman. And this in, in, in chapter two, verses 21 through 24, what we read is God puts Adam to sleep. First, he says it's not good for the man to, live, to, to be alone. And so I'll make a helper fit for him. And so uh, women in the room for, you know, in, in your role as a wife to a man is as a helper. And, and, and even that some get offended by that by that term. A helper. But I would tell you it's a good term. Why is it a good term? Because God himself in Scripture calls himself a helper all throughout the Old Testament. God comes as a helper. And then in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to send the helper, God, the Holy Spirit. And then in Hebrews, he says that the Holy Spirit is an ever present help in our time of need. God made Eve to help Adam. Why? All men know because we need help. Right. God knows men, even if you don't know it, I'm telling you, this is from God. You need help. (laughs) And God sent help in the form of a woman. So if you're a single guy here now, you need help and you don't even know it. Go find a woman and she's your help. And so God puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib out from his side. He fashions the woman with it. He wakes Adam up and he sees this this woman in front of him. I was going to say some other words. And then he quotes poetry. He I mean, he this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God performs a marriage. Genesis two twenty four. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife. That means hold fast and don't let go. That's where we get the marriage is forever. Not forever. It's it's enduring. And the two were naked and not ashamed. That's marital intimacy. This is God's plan. It was God's plan for for Adam and Eve. And so the husband is head of the wife. This reference comes from Genesis and the, the basis of it is Adam was created first. It's, it's the precedence of creation, really. And we see this also in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3, I'm going to look at that quickly. This is a weird text. I, I shouldn't call the Bible weird. I've been in trouble for that. But we can really misconstrue what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to free, read a few words of it. And I'm going to paraphrase the rest of it um, and then tell you what he's talking about. He says, starting in verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is is God. And so we have this idea here again of of headship. And this is the picture. A man submits to God. The woman sits, submits to the man. And if, if I would have backed up in Ephesians, 
really the picture that Paul gives us is that as a humanity, men and women get to submit to each other. Ephesians 5.21. There's a mutual submission going on here out of respect for who God has made them as image bearers. But then what Paul does in the rest of this text is just unfolds what it looks like for a man to be the head of a woman. And he says some pretty strange things. Listen to this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. What in the world is he talking about? For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair off. Cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And I think this is this is where he's getting to. Verse eight. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then he, he goes on. You know, there are if a literal re, a literal reading of this text would have us. Do some pretty strange things in the 21st century. It would have it would it would point to a woman's accessories, the things that she adorned her her body with to uh, to signify, you know, visibly that she was under authority, that she had that her husband was her headship. In the 21st century, it was her wearing some kind of a, a head covering. It may have been a hat. It may have been like a, you know, I don't know, like a towel top, wrapped around her head with a little design on it or something. But this was, it was literal. Okay, that's, that's what the literal meaning of this, this text is. And there are some churches even now, perhaps you've been in one of these, where women um, actually literally complied with, with this text. That would be a literal understanding. There's a spiritual meaning here, I think, that Paul wants us to get that's beyond just a woman wearing a head covering. And it's a and it's a, it's a meaning of authority. God wants us to get the picture, a visible manifest picture of authority on the earth. And that's what he's doing by this idea of, of head covering. Think of it. Think of it this way. Again, I've already said it. Man submits to God. The woman submits to the man. Precedence of creation. And this text tells us that Christ submits to God on the earth, doing all that God commanded him to do. And so here's the point. Everyone needs a symbol, a visible symbol of authority in their life. I need one as a pastor. You need to know that there's overseers over our church there's men in this church that I answer to. There are overseers above our church that I that I answer to that if I'm in, if I'm heretical or do something wrong, I'm, I'm wrong. You know, I'm just out of line with my wife. They can speak into my life and challenge me and even remove me. And you as people on the earth under Christ need a symbol of authority in your lives. And so for men, it's you. Living your life under Christ. And just being obedient to what the word says. Women, it's you being submissive to your husband. In the 21st century, that looked like a woman wearing a covering over her head. I would tell you in the 21st century, a picture of submission is, is, is a wedding ring. What's a wedding ring for? It's, you know, it's this gold symbol that reminds us that um, there's, an, there's, a, there's an enduring nature to it. It's, it's a fine metal. More than that, when people see it on your, your hand, it, mean, it means that you belong to another. That there's someone you're attached to, really someone that you're over. That's what this symbol means. Ephesians 5.33 says that one of the ways that uh, a manifest symbol of submission and under authority in a marriage is also a woman respecting her husband. The other side of that is a, a husband loving his wife. Ephesians 5.33. In 1 Peter one of the signs of submission was Sarah calling Abraham Lord. We'll look at first Peter real quick. First Peter three, first Peter uh, three, one through two. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So as even uh, so that even if some do not obey their, their word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So this is an example of a believing wife with an unbelieving husband. So, so, you, so you might be thinking, so Jeff, you just don't know my husband. My husband, I mean, he's, he's an abuser. He's, you know, he's an alcoholic. He, he's 
whatever your, your husband may be, in the negative sense of the, of the word, this is saying that there are, it's not guaranteed, but it's saying there's opportunity for a wife to be submissive to her husband and win him over by the respect that she shows. Again, a willing submission, not because she has to, but because she wants to, as she honors the Lord. And I would tell you, women, if, you, if, you're, if you're in a turbulent relationship, then this is the way to go. Because the opposite extreme of you fighting and cajoling and trying to lead the home it's not, going to, it's not going to get the love that you, that you deserve and that you want. And so what does it look like practically? What does this look like, a wife submitting to her husband in the marriage? What does it look like? Y'all dance? Anybody here dance? I'm, I'm serious. This is, this is, I got one person that dances. Tell you what, um, my wife's sitting right up here front. She can dance. Really? No. She could probably if 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 her parents would have let her a long time ago, she could have gone to school to do some professional dancing and be on TV just, just dancing it up. She's that good. My kids can dance, too. There's this opposite thing that's going on in my life. I used to be able to dance pretty. I was a drum major in high school and I had some good rhythm. But the older I get, my my rhythm is like leaking out. It's leaking out. and I don't know what's happening. So. We dance at home. We dance after dinner. We turn the music up and dance and stuff. Y'all like me? Y'all, y'all, do y'all like music and dance and stuff? All right, so we do that in our house. And my wife and I have gone dancing a few times. We don't do it a lot because, I, you know, it's, it's me. Uh, but, you know, this, the picture of this is like slow dancing or ballroom dancing. She's the better dancer, honestly, for sure. We've got great, great friends in North Carolina that are, that are ballroom dancers. They actually teach it. Wonderful people. And they tell us the trick is... Only one person can lead because if both of you are leading, you ain't getting nowhere. It's, it's not going to look like a dance. It's going to look like a fight. Right. So this is what submission looks like. Somebody's got to lead. And it's the wife, regardless of how proficient she is in dancing. It's her allowing, volunteering her husband to lead, lead the dance, sweetie. That's what it looks like. I think this means that submission that is forced upon a wife is not a biblical submission. That's what Paul is saying. Submission is not forced. It's voluntary. There's no inferiority of women implied by this imperative. It's something the wife willingly does. And as she follows the model set before her by Christ. All right. So that's the wives. Next to her husband. I'm going to go a little faster on the husbands. Verse 19 says, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. So the ladies are like. What in the world? I'm told to submit and all he's got to do is love me and not be harsh. How, how that can be fair. Surely there's more that God would God would say to the men who are leading our homes. Come on now. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to round it out, guys. Just just you need to buckle your seatbelt. So this is two commands. Not this is one command, not two. It's not love your wife and don't be harsh. It's love your wives but it's also qualified by the, the you know, the, the phrase, don't be harsh. He's explaining that. And that's really what I'm going to point out here. And so husbands are presented with a much more demanding task here. Um, I don't want to make too much about the word love, because a lot of times we can we can say that this word means God kind of love, agape. This means romantic, erotic love, eros. This means I'm not supposed to be like a brother kind of love. When you see the when you see the word in the Bible, love Know that you're supposed to love. okay? not just, you know, be kind, but love. And this is the best definition of love that I've ever heard is from Paul Tripp. And I don't have it on the screen, so you're going to have to just listen to me. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation and for which the other person is not even deserving. Say that with me. Love is love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. That doesn't require reciprocation. It's a lot of words there. And for which the other party is not deserving. Do you know what you just said? You said that love is me giving up my it's me giving up my right. It's sacrificing something that I actually deserve and have the right to have and do and be for the good of somebody else. I'm going to love them by sacrificing willingly. 
It doesn't require reciprocation. It's not tit for tat. It means I love you, you love me back. You give me a gift, I give you a gift back. It's I'm going to love you, I'm going to sacrifice for you, I'm going to lay down my life, and you don't have to do a thing. And then the last part is for which the other part doesn't, doesn't have to be deserving. Love does its best work, Paul Tripp says, when the other person is not deserving. I use that phrase at almost every wedding that I do, and it shocks the people in the audience. But it's absolutely true. That's love. Paul said love is not you giving your best to someone else because you'll always fall short. Love is pictured in Jesus' death on the cross for us, in our place, for our sin. That's a willing, self-sacrificial love for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation. 1 John chapter 4. And that's the love that Paul is talking about here for men. And men, you are inadequate to the task. All of you. All of us. Ephesians goes a little bit further. Ephesians just like nails a, I mean, he just nails the top of the coffin clothes on us. But I got to read it, dudes. I got to read it. If I can find it. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I don't think I have. Yeah, I don't have any of these words on the screen, so just listen to me or turn there. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 29, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You remember that? Genesis 2.24. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I don't have time to unpack all that, but a couple phrases Point out to me. The first phrase is that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's a lot there. People get this wrong all the time. This is talking about baptism. But the picture is, the metaphor is, there's a responsibility of a husband to wash his, wash his wife. There's a sanctifying thing that a husband is supposed to do by praying and speaking and sharing the word to his wife. And in that, it's almost as if you're baptizing her, sanctifying her. And then as he gets later on in the text, these words always hit me. For no one ever hated his own body. Let me back up. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. You know, it's it's pointing to our selfishness. You look in the mirror every morning. I don't know what you think, but I mean, sometimes, you know, you're like, I look good today. Right. And so (laughs) I I never do that. (laughs) I don't. Come on, dudes. I don't. (laughs) What he's saying is most of us, there's only a few people in the world that hate themselves. All right. And they need special. They need special treatment. Most of us have a high impression of ourselves. We're full of ourselves. And he's saying, treat your wife with 50 percent of the 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 care that you treat yourself and you'll be loving them. All right. I could say more. What I really want to point out is what we don't hear about a lot. Okay, verse 20, verse 19. He uses these words. Do not be harsh with them. And this I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever told you about how harsh you are, gents. My wife told me this week, it, it, I hate it, that, that usually a pastor has to live out the text he's going to preach during the week. And this one is about the family. And I've lived this out in every way. And it hadn't been good at all. <laughs> Y'all always ask me, how's your day going? How's your day doing? Well, you know that in a general week, Jeff has lived out the text in somehow. So, you know, I don't know. If we're talking about gluttony and stuff like that. I've, I've lived that out probably. They were talking about the family, wives and husbands and children and parents. I've lived this out. My kids know it. My wife knows it. God knows it. Now you know it. All right. Verbal harshness. This is a sin of mine. Um, back up. 
Paul says, don't be harsh with them. This is what harshness means. It means to show bitterness, resentment or hatred towards someone. The specific connotation is Christian husbands are not to be angry or incensed against their wives, either in thought or word or deed. And these are some of the ways, gents, that you are harsh with your with your wife, with your family. The first is verbal harshness, verbal harshness. You're harsh with your words. This is being short in how you speak. This is being argumentative, short tempered, correcting your wife. Cutting your wife off in conversation, she has to say things a certain way for it to be all right with you. And so if I just stepped on your toes, then repent, repent to her, repent to God. That's verbal harshness. The second is financial hardness. There's a few of us that that do this. This isn't I don't think all husbands do this. This is undue withholding of financial provision. This is you with a tight fist controlling the, the finances in your home and not doing it from a perspective of stewardship. You do it from a perspective of um, not allowing your wife to serve your family in the way that she needs to just to keep, you know, just order in the home. And I've, I've met some guys like these, some well, uh, you know, some guys that didn't have to do it because of their finances. Should we be content with what we have? Absolutely. Should we approach life as a steward and with financial, um, you know, just uprightness? We don't want to be sloppy with our money. We definitely want to. Um, if, the, if the husband is the head of the home, I'm trying to find a, a nice way to say this. If the husband is the head of the home, then then in many ways he can set some um, set some goals for your finances. But I think this is this is exhorting us, guys. Don't be don't be so tight fisted that you destroy your love for your wife. Don't make your wife appear like a 15 year old girl that has to put money in a piggy bank to save it, to buy things that you need in your home. That hurt. The third would be leadership harshness, harshness. I have to be careful with this one because, you know, when I talk to the guys, I want our fellows to be assertive in their leadership of their families and of their kids. And so what I'm getting at here is the, the, the prohibition is to be assertive in your leadership with your family with a motive. Because if you're being assertive in your leadership with your wife or even with your kids from a perspective, I want everybody to see it. I want to put it on Facebook date night. You know, I'm going to the movies, going out to eat. Let's look at this great thing I'm doing with my family right now. Then it's cool that you're doing it. But sometimes you're defeating the purpose if you're doing it with a motive. And that's poor leadership. And lastly, uh, parenting harshness. And this would be making the wife bear all the way to parenting. And there's a lot of this going on. It's somehow all of us men, it's almost taking us back to the first century where I have all the privilege and those that are in my household do all the work. This is what this would be akin to, akin to. And so this just looks like um, a, person, a, a husband loving their kids more than they love their wives because, you know, they only get a certain amount of time at the end of the day with their kids. And so, well, I want to be nice to them because I only get this amount of time to them. And so if I participate in the discipline, then they won't like me. And I mean, why don't you just do it? You're here with them all day. That's what that looks like. And that's poor leadership. All right. So that's all I got to say about the men. My, my foot is coming off your toe. Actually, the Holy Spirit's, Holy Spirit's boot. Children. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Go ahead and show this clip. See, my father established our relationship when I was seven years old. He looked at me and said, you know, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. And it don't make no difference to me because I make another one look just like you. Classic. That was a standard routine. Um, but uh, don't you just love Bill Cosby and his portrayal of, uh, of Huxtable, Bill Huxtable, and their prototypical family? And the neat thing is that the TV program in all the years that it showed actually showed us just the the, the, the difficulty of multiple ages of kids and uh, the issues that families um, just come about um, dealing with dealing with each other and all that life brings. And as parents, sometimes we do feel like that. You know what? I, I brought you in the world. I can take you out. You better shape up. That's not what God is saying, kids, by this word obey. Um, but it, it is saying honor your parents. 
It's saying it's taking you back to Exodus 20. That commandment says, children, honor your father and your mother, because that's the only one with with a condition. And the condition is so that it will go well with you all your days. So if you know this comes around, it absolutely comes around. So be careful. Parents are the primary authority in the child's life. God entrusts a great amount of responsibility to parents. It's one of the most weighty, important tasks that God gives parents. This this thing of bringing up their children, training them, nurturing them, discipling them, disciplining them. And so the fact of the matter is many in our society think that children are an afterthought. I'll, I'll take care of my kids after my career. I'll take care of my kids after I do all those things that are important to me. And Paul's exhortation for us through this thing of children obeying is that we shouldn't, as a Christian home, we shouldn't let those things happen. You know, and, and we live in a, in, a, in a region where this is prevalent. I mean, to even live here because of the affluent nature of where we live, the high cost of living, sometimes it takes two people working just to, just to live, put food on the table. And so I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that is bad. What I'm saying is you can't subjugate the, the training, nurturing, disciplining, and discipling of your kids to someone else, and you'll get to them as an afterthought. That's Paul's admonition for us here. The other admonition is... Um, this is, you know, this is talking about kids who are minors from zero to 18 year, years old or, or ish. It's those kids who are living in your house. It's those kids who might be in college that you're paying all their bills for. It's those grown up, grown up kids that you still have. You know, they're supposed to be living on their own, but you still as a parent are keeping them on your taxes. We don't have too many people in our We got a young congregation. so That's probably not happening. But if you're a young person and your parents are paying for your taxes. You grow up. Grow up. And so children obey your parents. This is a challenging word, isn't it? The simple connotation here is children are listening to their parents and are ready to carry out their orders or instructions. That's what you should be doing. And then he he asked this word in everything. And again, John John Scott broke this out last week. Everything means everything. There's, There's no way around it. What does everything mean? It means everything. The assumption here is that this is a Christian household, and so he's not talking about a secular kind of existence where um, people aren't believing and trying and, and trying to do those things that, that God is calling them to do, but they're actually trying to be accountable to God and do what he says. But even in telling the, the children to obey, really God is speaking to the parents here. Because a parent, regardless of a child, is, is the authority figure in their life. If a child that's a minor goes out and robs a, a store, then the parents are still the authority over that kid and will suffer some of the repercussions in some way. You might not get put in jail, but you'll feel the effect of that. Okay? And so as a parent, you can't get around this idea of if you aren't teaching your kids to obey in the home, it's going to have a manifestation somewhere else in their life or somewhere else out in society. And the motivation that Paul gives here is this pleases the Lord. And so I'm talking to the kids right here that just, you know, I don't talk to y'all specifically a lot, but this is what God is saying. Kids, this is how you worship Jesus. Obey your parents. I know that's not a that I, who wants to hear that. I'm thinking back to my time at home. What would I have done with those words? This brings God joy when you are obeying your parents. This is what God expects of you. It pleases him, is what Paul says. And lastly, I'm going to cover this quickly. Um, Paul addresses the parents. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so fathers are mentioned here, but the principle applies to both parents. Again, the, the thought process here is that you've got a household, that the head of the household is a male figure, a man, a husband, a dad, and he's intimately involved in leading the home. I think the, the, you know, Paul addresses fathers because dads are more than likely to be the one that provoke their kids and discourage them. But just, you know, our, our stature, our nature, you know, our, our presence in the home. A lot of times we can just show up and just the, the whole atmosphere in the house changes sometimes, doesn't it? I, mean, I remember my dad like that. And sometimes I purposely do that to my kids. I'll admit, sinful. 
So what does it look like? What does this look like? Fathers, parents not provoking your kids. I got this long list. I got a long list because, I mean, it's just, you, you know, I live this stuff all the time. And I know what I'm not supposed to do. And here, here I'm going to tell you, first of all, provoking your kids, it, it, it looks like you ignoring them. And today it's easy to ignore our kids. iPods, smartphones, Netflix, iPads. Some of our kids run. I mean, they can just flip through our iPad and iPhone quick, better than we can. All right. It, you don't just have to send your kids outside to play anymore. It's just like they just want a gadget. We PlayStation, Xbox 360. And sometimes those things are those are those things aren't bad, you know, but oftentimes just subjugating your kids being occupied for a little bit of time, long amount of time um, with those things is is to ignore them. The other would be indulge them. This is to give them everything they want. And we, we have some people that I know that give their kids everything they want. Paul said, don't do that. Because that produces something that you don't want in their adult life. Insult them. This is when you embarrass them sometimes in front of other people, abuse them or speak out of disrespect toward your kids. Your kids deserve respect as well. Um, here's some others. I'm just going to rattle these off. Showing favoritism, overprotection, setting unrealistic goals, living your life through them. I didn't do this as a kid, so I want my kid to be able to do it. A gross lack of standards for your kids. Kids need standards. You need standards. Excessive discipline. Those are the ones I just wanted to rattle off. I got four. I need, I need some extra time. Y'all give me some extra time? Three minutes. Four more things and I'm going to close. Four things, inconsistent expectations. And this plagues us all. Inconsistent expectations. What this looks like is your kids aren't sure when you, what you mean when you mean it. A small infraction happens in the home and you completely, um, I mean, they, they just get disciplined. Spanking or you know, some other punishment. And then the, kid, the, you know, the next day, the kid takes the baby and just throws him out the window. And you say, well, Johnny will be OK. Fortunately, kids are flexible. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm giving you extremes. A kid living in those circumstances, he doesn't know what you mean when you mean it. OK. And so the, the prohibition is don't don't be inconsistent in your expectations. And the hardest thing is for the husband and the wife to be on the same page of paper. That's the hard thing. And so get your get your get on the same page of paper, husband and wives. And the instruction that you're giving to your kids has to be you know, the expectations of of what's right and what's wrong in your home has to be from both of you coming together because your kids will navigate that space between you. And oftentimes they'll go to the least common denominator, whichever one is you, whichever one of you is the weakest. Well, dad will let me watch TV. Dad will let me play with the iPhone. That's me. He'll let me go. He'll let me play. Wii. mom's not going to let me do that. Your kids are doing that to you. Mine do it to me, don't you? <laughs> Idle threats. Idle threats. This is that wagon parent. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One, two. When, okay, if you're counting to three, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm offending some of y'all. I'm just giving you some examples. What happens when you count to three? When is the kid going to obey? Is he going to obey on one? <laughs> <laughs> No, he's going to wait till three. And so what you're teaching the kid is that your idle threats mean nothing. Your idle threat means nothing. Do that again and you're going to get a spanking. And then when he does it again, you do nothing. And so the admonition is mean what you say and say what you mean. If you aren't going to back it up, don't say it because you make yourself look bad. And your kid um, takes advantage of that. I'm just telling all the kid tricks. I used to do these, too. The third one, asking instead of telling. Johnny, are you ready to go to bed? And Johnny, what's Johnny going to respond? No. And then you get mad at Johnny because Johnny told you the truth. Johnny's not ready to go to bed. Johnny wants to stay up, play with your iPod. That's what Johnny wants to do. Don't get mad at Johnny for answering you with the question, you know, responding accurately to what you answered him. So the prohibition here is issue direct commands. OK, Johnny, it's time to go to bed. Go up there and go to bed. <laughs> the last one, irrational discipline. 
All right. This is slapping your kid, yelling at him, inappropriate discipline. Um, this is and this is more than a warning. This is don't do this. All right. So this is this is discipline, not based on a love that you have for the kid to, to raise them up or to discipline them. So they grow in the Lord. This is you abusing them. OK. And there are ways to apply discipline without it coming off as as abuse um, in this manner. And as a parent, we're responsible to repent when this happens. Let's close. God wants our homes to be a place where our marriages flourish and where our children are nurtured and not only um, not only to obey parents, but to love Jesus. And I think the one thing that gets in our way is is this idea of, of selfishness, you know, selfishness, me wanting what I want when I want it um, is the root of every sin that I commit. And it's probably the same way in your life as well. And this idea of selfishness gets in the way of our relationships. It gets in the way of husband and wife relationships. It gets in the way of parent and children relationships. And I would also offer you, it gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Paul Tripp says this. He says, life is lived vertically before it's lived horizontally. And so you cannot give a person in a horizontal relationship, whether it's a husband to a wife or a parent to a kid, anything that you have not yet received from God. And so we need God's help. We need to get from God vertically all kinds of things so that we can in turn give them, share them, use them in our horizontal relationships. And so the good news of the gospel is that in all the ways we are inadequate, Jesus is enough. He's preeminent, Colossians tells us, which means that He's sufficient. And so, ladies, Jesus, upon his death, comes as a helper. By the Holy Spirit, he comes to help. And he's helping you to be the helper to your husband. And so, men and husbands, Jesus shows us real love by his death on the cross. A love that's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that doesn't require reciprocation and for which the other person is not even deserving. That's the love God has called us to in regards to our spouses and our families. Kids, Jesus was the perfect son to God, to God the Father. And parents, there's no God like our God. He really is a father that loves us like no other. And so for all the ways that you've been challenged today by God's word, let's look to Jesus. He's enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. These are tough words, simple sentences, tough words, and all of us need help. From the person who's a kid in here, the person who is aspiring to be in a relationship, to all of us who are married in the room, we need your help. Holy Spirit, come and help. We cry out for your help. Lord God, do for us vertically. Give us what we don't have so that we can share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.